Other People with Brad Listy is a weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading authors, poets, and screenwriters. Electric Literature calls it one of the best podcasts on the web, and BuzzFeed calls it the perfect way to get the stories behind your stories. There are now more than 400 episodes available, including one featuring me. And counting. Really? Yeah. The, the, I talked to him a couple of years ago when I was oh. promoting one of my novels. Brad, uh, Brad, Listy, Brad Listy is a great resource, right? He's the, the Nervous Breakdown has been a great literary podcast for almost a decade. No, now. he's fantastic. He gets the best people and he, he asks terrific questions. Hear conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Leslie Jameson, Hanya Yanagihara, Jonathan Lethem, Sheila Hetty, Eileen Miles, and many more. Other People with Brad Listy has its own official app available for free at your local app store. The show is also available for free at iTunes and Stitcher and on the web at otherpeople.com. That's otherppl.com. It's a cool podcast. Check it out. Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, Jeff Mayno talks to us about a fascinating examination of crime, architecture, and urban design he's written called A Burglar's Guide to the City. If you're not paranoid about getting robbed already, you will be after hearing this. And Kate Gale and John Brantingham of Red Hen Press are here to talk about their new anthology of Los Angeles short fiction called the L.A. Fiction Anthology. Lori Weiner, how did they ever think of that title? Uh, well, I know for a fact that it took many, many sessions. We're going to ask them that question. Joining me are my co-hosts. She is the former fiction editor of LARP. She is now the editor without portfolio or the editor with all portfolios, Lori Weiner. Welcome. Hi, Seth. And the professor, the founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Seth, I'm so happy to be here. You look happy. You Lord, don't does, sound. He doesn't sound. Does he look happy to you? Looks like he, he always looks. I think we should do the show. Jeff Mayno is the author of Building Blog, which is one of the most acclaimed architecture sites on the web. He's here to talk about his new book, A Burglar's Guide to the City. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Jeff, my the first thing we should do, I think, before we start bombarding you with questions, is uh, why don't you, for our listeners, define exactly what is the precise definition of burglary? Well, so burglary is interesting in that it's not a federal crime, and so every state in the U.S. has its own definition of burglary. However, if you look at the FBI's definition, uh, because they have to obviously know what sorts of crimes exist in the country for assistance with investigating them, they define it as the intent to commit a crime uh, effectively inside a building that you don't have permission to be in. And so what's interesting about that is that you don't actually have to steal anything to be a burglar. Um, a burglar can be anyone if you um, you know go to someone's house and step across the door without an invitation, and you threaten the homeowner, um, you are a burglar. If you uh, fire a handgun inside a mine, 
um, and it's an unlicensed gun and you don't have permission to be in the mine, you can be a burglar. Um, so it's a very peculiar crime. And what I think is interesting about it is that at heart, though, it's connected to the built environment. You, you cannot be a burglar if you're not inside an artificial space, whether it's a mine or a house. And so in the very definition of being a burglar, you are connected to architecture. And I think that there's something quite interesting about that that I, I wanted to develop over the course of the book. Okay, so this answers a very a mystery that's been hanging around my life since I was in high school. There was a kid in our high school who broke into somebody's house, I think maybe drank some booze out of their booze cabinet, went out back, took a swim, took all his clothes off, swam in the pool, and then pr- probably passed out and didn't wake up until the police arrived. Sure. And his nickname in school from then on was the Naked Burglar. But <laughs> if he had only, if he had not drank the booze in the house, he wouldn't have been a burglar. If he had, was just outside naked at the pool, that That's- would not be burglary? You know, if he had only snuck around back and jumped in, then that would have been trespassing. But if there was a pool house or any kind of awning that he had gone and passed under, you could have had a clever legal argument that he had technically entered an internal space ah. and thus could have con- could have would have constituted burglary. Okay. And then even if he hadn't drunk the booze, if he had, you could have argued that he had the intent of doing some sort of criminal activity in the house. Otherwise, he wouldn't have entered it. And that intent alone could also have nabbed him as as a burglar. Jeff, what got you interested in the intersection of burglary and design? Well, I guess sort of at heart, it seemed really interesting to me that burglary, the minute you begin talking about it, you start talking about where interiors end and out the outside world begins, or you start talking about how the burglar entered the building in the first place, which means now you're talking about doors and you're talking about windows. Um, maybe you're even talking about hallways and whether or not they used them or they cut a hole through the wall. Um, you're talking about roofscapes and how someone might have climbed up onto a roof to cut down into a bank or a check cashing facility. And as an architecture writer, someone who's been covering cities and design and architecture for more than a decade, um, it kind of seemed to me like there was this enormous conversation happening in plain sight where there is a huge amount of people who are talking about the built environment, but they're doing it in a way that doesn't focus on aesthetics or history. Instead, it focuses on tactics or strategy. And it's about seeing the same kinds of things that, you know, you or I might notice, like a really nice uh, uh, hand-carved detail on a fence. But what a burglar is seeing there is not, you know, craftsmanship or historical accuracy in terms of how it was realized by maybe uh, the, the latest renovation. What they're seeing is whether or not they can hold on to that to climb to the second floor, or if the door is recessed enough that it casts a shadow that they can hide there while the police car drives by. And in having that conversation, you begin to realize that there are, in fact, not only details that are easy to miss, but also that, uh, you know, there's an entirely different class of activities that people engage in in the built environment and how they use or misuse buildings. Uh, Burglars have always struck me as, uh, not to put too, uh, (laughs) to to use a a somewhat vulgar word, they're scumbags. And yet, yeah. throughout the book, they're presented in an, in an almost mythic light, which you, you know, cop to. And then, at the end, not so much. And I'd love it if you would talk about uh, how you apprehended the idea of the burglar originally and how your view of these people evolved during the course of your research and writing of the book. Um, I'd say that, you know, when I started writing the book, I was definitely had a 50-50 
relationship with the notion of the burglar, because after all, you know, it, it is very easy to heroize or mythologize the figure of the burglar in the sense that they seem to be the people who solved the puzzle, and they've done it through some, you know, rebellious act of genius. But on the flip side of that, you know, there are the uh, everyday stories of burglars who, uh, you know, break into a department store and they get trapped inside the wall or they break into a restaurant and they step into a bag of flour and they bring footsteps all the way back to their own apartment front door and get arrested shortly thereafter. There's a lot of uh, examples that I, I start the book with where they, they get trapped in the ceiling or they get lost in the building that they broke into, which is, which is, is, is almost uh, is, is so absurd. It's like a Monty Python sketch. And so there's a case where a burglar actually called 911 because he couldn't find his way out of the building. And yet another one where he called 911 because he thought there was another burglar inside the building and he got scared. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're not dealing with, um, you know, the, uh, the, the 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 cream of the crop here when you're when you're dealing with burglary. But so what I wanted to do over the course of the book was really kind of focus on some of the more interesting exceptions. You know the people who do in fact rely upon and use a knowledge of architecture and even infrastructure in a criminal way. I didn't realize until I read your book read your book that so many of the criminals that we mythologize in movies like Ocean's Eleven, all of the you know Tom. Uh, cruise movies, uh, Mission Impossible, that they're all kind of based on George Leslie in a way, that he was the prototype. Yeah, George Leonidas Leslie was a really interesting historical figure who seemed very emblematic of the themes I wanted to develop over the book. Um, but Leslie was trained as an architect. Uh, he, in fact, was quite good. He graduated with honors, and this is in the mid-19th century, and he has moved to New York City to effectively kind of make his fortune in the world of design. But when he gets there, he arrives, uh, you know, I've compared it almost to the Dubai of its day. You know, there was just an incredible amount of money. Uh, You know, they were just starting to develop um, some of the technologies that were going to change the city, like such as the elevator, the Brooklyn Bridge is under construction. You know, it's a very heady moment to be there. But so Leslie realizes that his architectural skills have perhaps a more devious but more lucrative use which is that if he knows how to build buildings, he also knows how to get into them. And so he effectively puts his architectural skills to use and uh, corrals together a bank robbery crew. And they were behind actually 80%, that's eight zero percent of all of the bank crime in the United States at the time, which is just a jaw-dropping statistic. And so they became known for a lot of things, as you, as you implied in your question, that have sort of become Hollywood cliches. Um, so Leslie, for example, would would uh, even break into a bank uh, and not steal anything at all. He would just uh, take measurements or he would walk the vault. He would see what brand of safe they had. And then he would take all of these measurements and the knowledge of the safe company, and he would go back to his warehouses that he had access to in Brooklyn and construct a replica of the vault that they were going to attack. Uh, he would actually, you know, pretend to open up uh, uh, an account in other banks so that he could see the inside. He would even just use his charisma and his ability, his his social engineering, to convince other people who were uh, working on structures. So, you know, he talked his way into the kind of upper echelons of society. And so he'd meet a bank manager and say, hey, you know, I'm an architect. Uh, I'm also working on a bank vault, but I'm having a lot of trouble with certain details. Can I see the floor plans of your bank? And so, of course, you know, why would you distrust an architect of all people? And so, and, and it's also him, kind of he, hard not to admire him, right? A little bit. Yeah, I mean, I do think that he had a kind of, you know, a cockiness or a charisma that just made him 
a pretty hard guy to turn down. And so, right, um, more more Cary Grant than uh, Bonnie and Clyde, or exactly, or, yeah. And for for all of that, you write in the book that burglary has experienced a, a pretty significant decline. I think, if I recall correctly, the figure you said was it was down something like eighty percent, eight zero. Is that right? Um, yeah, in fact, actually, um, and since the book came out, actually, it's gone down even more, uh, uh, or since I wrote that, rather. And nice so job. Since, well done. Since, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, but since 1990, in New York, where I live, um, burglary is actually down 87%. And so, I mean, that's uh, almost extinguishing it. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a drop. Um, and so there's a lot of factors there. I mean, one is that homeowners have become more savvy to the ways of burglars and so have learned ways to protect themselves. The the other side of that is that burglary has sort of lost um, its appeal to a huge range of potential criminals in that it's now so easy to commit things like identity theft. You don't need to worry about the, the, the brute force, physical breaking and entering, and, and all you, of the risks associated with it. you don't put it. yourself in physical danger, at right. least and not. Our, our engineer is emptying your bank account right now. Actually, <laughs> yes. Jeff, yeah, yeah. What, what was your mother's maiden name again, Jeff? Um, <laughs> what, my, here's my question. Um, it, the, have you ever heard this urban myth, because I'm trying to track it down for reasons of my own, that uh, you have a hit show, like this This story started with Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, Um someone would get win a raffle or get tickets in the mail to this show that was impossible to get tickets to. And then their house would be burgled that night. Have you ever uh, heard that? Uh, I mean, not that particular story, but you do hear that kind of thing. Yeah. Where, you know, I mentioned in the book actually that uh, uh, some burglars will actually specifically sort of cash in when it's sports season because they know that somebody is a huge, uh, you know, a football fan or hockey fan and that they're going to be at the next game. And so that means that their house is going to be empty for four hours. And um, what's interesting about that technique, actually, the sort of, you know, going when you know the homeowner is not there, is that in many ways, that's a very literally ancient technique. Um, you know, I point out in the book that I interviewed a historian at Cambridge University who has written a book about crime in ancient Rome. And um, the, uh, it's a gentleman named Jerry Toner. And uh, Jerry pointed out that you know, the same kind of thing popped up in ancient Rome where you would wait until everybody was at the chariot races <laughs> and then you would just go back against the direction of the crowd and break into their homes. And so it is really interesting, actually, when you look at burglary, um, you know, that one, it's the modus operandi for burglary has remained consistent for literally thousands of years now, but also just that burglars have such a foundational presence in the built environment, you know, I mean, the very act of constructing a building not only legally produces a burglar in the sense that somebody who comes in without permission to commit a crime is now is, is a burglar, but also, you know, we don't just build walls to keep the elements out. We also build walls to keep other people out. And so, it's, you know, you could argue that in the very DNA of the city, uh, there is a, the fear of, of, of breaking and entering that the burglar presents and that they are as much a part of the city as the buildings they break into. Okay, the book is A Burglar's Guide to the City. Jeff Mano, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks again. I appreciate the interest. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. The author Bruce Wagner was in here recently to talk about his new book, I Met Someone, and he has graciously returned to discuss a poem. Bruce, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. What's the poem? This is a poem called Kukulan Comforted. It's by William Butler Yeats. And it's the story of a famous warrior who is dying. 
and he he meets um, these ghosts that that help usher him in and, and comfort him. A man that had six mortal wounds, a man violent and famous, strode among the dead. Eyes stared out of the branches and were gone. Then certain shrouds that muttered head to head came and were gone. He leant upon a tree as though to meditate on wounds and blood. A shroud that seemed to have authority among those bird-like things came and let fall a bundle of linen. Shrouds by two and three came creeping up because the man was still. And thereupon that linen carrier said, Your life can grow much sweeter if you will obey our ancient rule and make a shroud. Mainly because of what we only know, the rattle of those arms makes us afraid. We thread the needle's eyes, and all we do, all must together do. That done, the man took up the nearest and began to sew. Now we must sing, and sing the best we can. But first you must be told our character. Convicted cowards all, by kindred slain, or driven from home and left to die in fear, they sang, but had nor human tunes nor words, though all was done in common as before. They had changed their throats and had the throats of birds. Fantastic. Wow. He was dying when, when he wrote one of the, the late poem of his, and the idea that it's shame that all of these shrouds that this warrior would meet they're all the same now, even though they were cowards. Mm. You know, and he's got to sew and sing with them. Oh, it kills me. This poem kills me. You should do an audio book. Well, Bruce, was there was was there an audio book for I Met Someone? Yes, in fact, Julianne Moore uh, graciously um, agreed to do that, and it's the only book uh, that she's ever done, and I think it'll be the only book she'll ever do. <laughs> it was a difficult process, and it's beautiful. The outcome is gorgeous. Fantastic! I want to hear it. Thanks okay. for coming back. Thanks so much, Bruce. Kate Gale and John Brantingham of Red Hen Press are here to talk about their new anthology of Los Angeles short fiction called the L.A. Fiction Anthology. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So you have... Uh, a very nice list of authors here. Uh, I'm not going to read the names, but suffice it to say, they include people like Percival Everett and T.C. Boyle. There are so many terrific writers in Los Angeles. How did you boil it down? First of all, this was Percival Everett's idea, this anthology. Um, and he wanted us to have an anthology that would have a, a variety of, of L.A. voices, but would allow us to bring in some fiction writers that hadn't gotten as much attention as they wished they had. And so that it would be sort of a quintessentially L.A. Uh, anthology with LA stories, but that it would be, it, 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 we would really uh, bring in some new voices. Um, we'd done the Devil's Punch Bowl and it was all big writers. And so this was a way of bringing in some other writers. And how do the young or the unknown people get in? That was working with John. John seemed to know everybody who's going to be famous 10 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a really soft spot in my heart for uh, community college professors because I am one. And so I, I was looking uh, 
through the community colleges as, as much as possible, some some universities. And we've we just found people who have been kind of working, working hard, and especially part-time teachers who haven't had a lot of time to send stuff out, um, but they really needed to, to have their voices heard because they're saying some pretty interesting things. It's the quintessential Red Hen product in many ways, isn't it, Kate? Yes. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about Red Hen for listeners who, who don't know uh, about the history of the press in Los Angeles. When we started the press in 94, I was just going through a divorce and everything I owned, plus my two kids, plus my pre- pregnant babysitter, all fit in a two-seater car. And so that DNA kind of kept going. The whole idea that I wanted to be part of helping people get going in their writing career who were struggling otherwise. I remember sometime someone was suggesting someone read at one of the reading series at the Annenberg Beach House. And I was like, no, this person already teaches at USC. I don't think that that's that's right for us. And they were like, what are you talking about? I was like, you know, Red Hen is kind of dirty. It's kind of grunge. It's just about to, you know, we're just falling off the cliff and learning to fly. And so I do feel like um, the whole idea of someone who's excited about getting their their writing career going. Um, Douglas Kearney, who uh, Tom knows, um, you know, when I met him, he was just starting at CalArts, and it's just been exciting to see him take off. And it's a nonprofit, and it was the first uh, in L.A. of of what are now uh, dozens of small presses, right? You were way ahead of the curve on, uh, on the kind of new version of how a press can bring new voices to market. It's interesting because when we started um, with Red Hen, there was no Antioch University MFA program. The UC Riverside program was in its infancy. And so there didn't feel like there was this huge literary culture in Los Angeles as as it does now. So it felt like um, we needed to get something going. The bookstores were dying out. And if we didn't get some literary culture going, there wouldn't be anything for us to all sort of hold on to. Do you want to talk about one of your favorite stories? Maybe tell us about one of the stories. Yeah, I, I really love Debakar Barua's story, and it's he's a he's from Bangladesh, and he writes about going and and the differences between living in Bangladesh and Hong Kong and Los Angeles, uh, where his family are spread out, and so he goes from place to place and finally comes back to Los Angeles, feeling sort of disconnected, no matter where he is. I really found it a beautiful story. I really loved the the Ron Carlson pirate story, partly because it was the furthest afield uh, in a way from Los Angeles. But it was about the whole idea of it's a very funny story, but it's about the whole idea of someone pretending to be something they're not. And one of my favorite pieces in that Devil's Punch Bowl had been by Pat Morrison, and it's about L- L.A. as land of reinvention. And I love this idea of people coming here and then becoming someone else. And so I felt that thematically it it fit in. So would you say that that was either of your stories? Well, it's definitely for me because uh, I grew up in a cult and came to, to when I came to California. Okay, to to- wait. Let's go back. Okay, where? <laughs> where? Tell us just a little bit more about that. Um, the cult was in southern New Hampshire, and it was um, a very fundamentalist Christian cult. And so when I came to L.A. to go to graduate school, um, it was part of the idea was that I could make some, myself into a cool writer and get laid. And um, I, I guess—and and I was also going to get a job, so I've, I've become a writer and gotten laid. Um, so two out of three. Congratulations. Yes. And John? 
Uh, I grew up in uh, West Covina, California, which is in San Gabriel Valley. And, um, and then, I, I, then you escaped to Walnut? Yeah, I escaped. <laughs> it, it was a journey of three miles. Uh, <laughs> How would you describe the L.A. literary scene now? Um, you said that it was you know, really just a rosebud when you first started. I mean, do you feel it's burgeoning? Do you feel it has far to go? Um, how would you describe it? Um, I'm very excited about the the amount going on at the independent bookstores. I really feel that the independent bookstores are the, the, the core of a literary city. Um, and it seems to me that um, with Diesel Books and, and, and uh, Skylight and Vromans, that there's a lot going on. You could be going to a lot of events. So I think of that as being a core element. Um, we have a writing in the schools pro- program. CalArts has one. I think more and more there are more and more programs for kids. Um, and I think that's the, the sign of a literary community that can give back. Uh, that isn't just about writers trying to find a foothold, like they were rock climbing up a cliff or something, when you can actually, you have enough of an ecosystem that you can do other things. What are the factors? I, th- I think about that a lot too. What are the factors that, that caused this, uh, the community to bloom the way it did, when it did? Well, Interestingly, when we've been talking about all this growth, we haven't talked as much about the universities, but I actually think that's where it started. Um, I think Moria Simon at Riverside was mentoring kids. I had a professor, Benjamin Saltman, who wanted to see all of us get out there and build a community. And two of us started presses and somebody started a literary magazine. So there was this feeling there when I was in graduate school that we all needed to make something. And you notice the new generation of millennials, they're making you know, they're part of the maker movement. And I think that, you know, now when I'm speaking, I just spoke at the UCLA Extension, you know, program. And I, I'm always excited when someone's like, I'm going to start an African-American press. I'm going to start a gay press. And, you know, I think we need more more literary life, more subculture uh, organizations. But um, I really feel that the beginning of the growth was that there were university professors that got their students excited about making something, doing something, not just asking the literary world what it could do for you and your art. And John, you've been here longer than any of us, so you've watched uh, you've watched this uh, progression as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the the idea when I was young was I was going to go to the East Coast or go to Europe or something. That was the only way. But I had the exact same experience with that Kate had with my uh, university professors. I went to Cal State Long Beach, and there was a real focus on getting us out there and getting us doing something. So I started reading series. My friends started uh, very small presses, and that grew into larger presses. And, you know, we were all out there trying to make community. And I, I don't think um, it's really hard to be a writer without without a community. And and so I think there, there's a tradition of, of writers coming here and then going back, right, you know, all the way back to Fitzgerald and, and writers like that. But I don't think that that's true anymore. And I, I don't feel that, that people feel that young writers feel they have to go and, and just get out of the area. All right, the book is the L.A. Fiction Anthology, Kate Gale and John Brantingham. Thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour. Thank Thank you so much much for having us. It's time for thank yous today. And first, I'd like to thank our crack production assistant, Ernesto Oraleano. I want to say uh, a shout-out to Aviva de Kornfeld, who uh, helped us with scheduling this episode. She is no longer with us. She's not dead. She's scheduling scheduling czar emeritus. She has left for greener pastures. And finally, 
Every week, I say thank you to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin. And this is going to be the last time I'll be saying that because Jerry is leaving. He is, uh, he has found something he'd rather do. He is leaving hard us. Hard as that is to believe. Hard as that is to believe. He's Why is everyone leaving us at one time? I know. First Aviva and now Jerry. He is, he is leaving us in his wake, in his jet stream. He is gone. He's been an absolutely fantastic producer. Jerry, it's been a pleasure working with you, your, your work ethic, your sense of humor. You're, uh, you're just showing up every week and bringing the A game. I know I really appreciate it. Lori, would you like to make a joke at Jerry's expense now? Absolutely not. Jerry, hats off to you. You have been superb to work with, and we will miss you very much. Jerry, don't cry. <laughs> it's, uh, we, we will miss you, uh, and, uh, and uh, we really appreciate the, the work you put into this. You've made the LARP Radio Hour uh, so much better than it would have been <laughs> if it had just been the three of us. We know that. While we went, we really went from uh, crawling to walking to uh, to trotting. I think with uh, with Jerry, we're still to, hoping to, to toddling. We're still least. hoping to run one day, but uh, we're, the only reason we're not running has nothing to do with Jerry. I think. Anyway, Jerry, it's been terrific working with you. Find us on the web at www.lareviewbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. And if you're there, give us a rating. It helps people find the show. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be here next week. Will you? For Lori Weiner, Tom Lutz, this is Seth Greenland. Later. You know, it occurs to me that Jerry was, we always called him our moral conscience. Does this mean we no longer have a conscience? I would say we are adrift. We are amoral. We are somewhere tumbling through the universe without any basis for deciding right or wrong. Lori, In other you, words, it's Tuesday. Yes. <laughs>